I'm going to read out of a few versions this morning. It's just two verses, and I want you to kind of give an idea of what the various versions uh, say. They basically all say the same essential message, but uh, I think it's good to kind of get some different wordings. And so the first version obviously will be the New King James, is what I preach out of, and we'll look at a couple of others. The Apostle Peter says to the saints that are spread throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, and the rest, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, the ESV basically says the same thing. We're going to read that one. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The Net Bible, which is really an excellent translation, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to keep away from fleshly desires that do battle against the soul and maintain good conduct among the non-Christians so that they who now malign you as wrongdoers may see your good deeds and glorify God when He appears. And I want to read to you a version that I feel certain that none of you have. It's Weiss. W-U-E-S-T-S, really amplified version. And essentially it's his, not only his translation, but it's his interpretation, which is a good one. He says, Divinely loved ones, I beg of you, please, as aliens and those who have settled down alongside of a pagan, unsaved people, be constantly holding yourselves back from the passionate cravings which are fleshly by nature, Fleshly in that they come from the totally depraved nature. Cravings of such a nature that like an army carrying on a military campaign, they are waging war, hurling themselves down upon your soul, holding your manner of life among the unsaved steadily beautiful in its goodness, in order that in the thing in which they defame you as those who do evil, namely your Christianity, because of your works beautiful in their goodness, which they are constantly, carefully, and attentively watching, they may glorify God in the day of His overseeing care. So, this is serious business today. Alright? As we read the Scripture and we specifically read the New Testament, what we find is that the Christian life is described in a, in a various kinds of ways. I mean, it's, it's described as believing. If you read Matthew through Revelation, you really see that the Christian life is a life of believing. Believe, believe, believe is constantly. It's it's, it's described as a a life of walking. Walk in the Spirit. Walk with the Lord. And and, and, uh, some of the writers even talk about how they are walking with the Lord. It's a, a life that's described as resting. It's a life that's described as rejoicing in. Often, Paul even describes it as a life of suffering. And, and you know what? It would be a good, 
It would be a good ambition for us to kind of study all of those descriptions of the Christian life out so that we can understand the, the myriad of ways in which we are to understand our relationship with God and our relationship with each other and our relationship to the, to the Lord. Walking, believing, living, suffering, um, trusting, rejoicing. But what we see today is that the Christian life is warring. W-A-R-R-I-N-G. The Christian life is a war. It is a war. If you are a Christian, you are a soldier in a spiritual battle. That's what you are. No matter whether you are man or woman, boy or girl, if you are a Christian, you are in a war. And any other mentality than a wartime mentality is going to be ingredients for failure, frustration, and fruitlessness in your life. Now, now, resting has to be alongside warring. Rejoicing in has to be alongside warring. Living, believing, walking, they, they all still have to be there. But if you don't see your life as a battle, then what you're going to find is you're going to fail in that battle and destruction is imminent. J.C. Ryle, who was a bishop in the 1800s, he's written a, a number of excellent books. Uh, if you've never read Ryle, I encourage you to do so, R-Y-L-E, but he's written a book called Holiness, and in that book on holiness, there's a chapter called The Fight. And uh, that chapter, I would just love to read to you guys one day, just as the sermon. It is, a, it is a great chapter. But listen to what he says. He says, there are thousands of men and women who go to churches and chapels every Sunday and call themselves Christians. Their names are in the baptismal register. They are considered Christians while they live. They are married with a Christian marriage service. They mean to be buried as Christians when they die. But you never see any fight about their religion. Of spiritual strife and exertion and conflict and self-denial and watching and warring, they know literally nothing at all. Such Christianity may satisfy man, and those who say anything against it may be thought very hard and uncharitable. But it is certainly not the Christianity of the Bible. It is not the religion which the Lord Jesus founded and His apostles preached. It is not the religion which produces holiness. True Christianity is a fight. End quote. And so what I want to tell you today is, if you have a spiritual vision for the glory of God, like you want to see God's glory. You want to behold Him in His grandeur and in His majesty and in His loveliness and in His beauty. I want to tell you today, you've got to fight for that. It's not going to come to you easy. It's not going to come cheap. You've got to fight for it. If you want, if you want a family life that is enjoyable, that is sweet, that is lovely, that when you go home, you can't, you can't wait to get there. And once you're there, it is, just, it is just so awesome to be with your family. That is not going to happen just by going to church. You've got to fight for that. All right? And we can go on and on and on. And I would say this, because of our text today, if you truly want to make a difference for Christ, like you really want to see people saved, you want to see people's lives transformed, you want to see the, 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 the blinds come off of people's eyes that they may see Jesus for who He is and bow down before Him and worship Him and you get to behold this, th th this development that happens in a person. It's not just going to ha happen just by saying a few words. You've got to fight for that kind of thing. 
And so I want to call you to a life of fighting. There are three enemies in the battle, all right, that you have, that you're fighting against. And, and I think most of you know uh, these three enemies. It's the devil, the world, and the flesh. The devil, the world, and the flesh. Jesus actually called the devil in Matthew 13, verse 39, the enemy. He called him the enemy. He, he knew that Satan is the arch enemy of God and the arch enemy of humanity. And he knew that Satan is the most powerful enemy that we have. All right? That's something that we need to understand. Satan is not undecided about his relationship towards you. All right? He is not neutral in his, in his uh, attitude toward you. All right? He hates you, he hates your soul. And he's coming after your soul. And he will do whatever it takes to bring you down. He will lie to you. He will deceive you. He will allure you. He will tempt you. He will, he will accuse others to you. He will do whatever it takes. And that's why Peter actually says, be sober. Be vigilant. Because there is a roaring lion who is looking to devour you. Now, the second enemy that we have, you know, if, if the devil is the most powerful, all right, the second one is the world. The world is the most visible. The world is the most visible enemy that you have day in and day out, all right? The world is the spiritual system in this universe, essentially, that opposes God and hates Jesus Christ. That's what the world is, all right? The, world's, the world is at odds with Christ, and therefore, the world is at odds with you as a soldier of Christ. Now, we have, we, we often lull ourselves into, into thinking that there are certain things in the world that are neutral. I want to tell you, neutrality does not exist. All right? You're either for Christ or you're against Him. You're either with Him or you're apart from Him. And so when we think about this world, we need to think about the reality of, of news, news outfits and, and, and media enterprises and entertainment and sports and business and politics and education, all of these things that do not bow the knee to Christ and give honor to Christ and love Christ and want to exalt Christ and preach Christ, they are against Him. And when we yield ourselves to these different institutions and then these groups, what we're saying is, I want to be fed by them. I want to learn from them. And in that way, what we're saying is, I want to oppose Christ. So we need to be careful. We need to be careful who we yield ourselves to, who we allow our minds to be informed by, how we let our hearts to be shaped by certain things. And it doesn't matter whether it's ESPN, CNN, or, or Hollywood. It is significant. Because when is the last time Hollywood has stood up and said, we worship Christ? When is the last time Sports Center has said, we do this show to the glory of Jesus? When is the last time CNN has done an expose on the honor and esteem and holiness of Jesus Christ of Nazareth? You're not going to see it. Why? Because of the world, and they oppose Christ. And, they're, and, and the world, and it's just, a, it's, it's just an expression in the world we need to understand is, is, the, is the enemy. Those people aren't our enemy, but the world system in which those things represent are our enemy. And the third is the flesh, and it's really what Peter talks about today. The, the flesh is the most intimate enemy that you have. All right. So if Satan is the most powerful and the world is the most visible, 
Your flesh is the most intimate and sometimes, therefore, the most dangerous. And, and we, we looked at this a few months ago when I uh, preached from Galatians. But the, the flesh is that old man, that, that old woman that still hangs around you. It's the remnant of the old person that's depraved that is not, your whole life and your whole body is not going to be completely transformed until you actually see Jesus, until you actually behold him and he transforms you from one glory to the next. And that's what the flesh is. And what does the flesh do? The flesh it craves sinful things. The flesh craves all kinds of, has all kinds of sinful ambitions. And, and so what, uh, what we need to understand is that the flesh is our enemy. And I think I put up the cartoon. Yeah, I did. I put up the cartoon a couple of months ago. And what we said is we don't need to feed the flesh. We need to starve the flesh. And we need to rise up and, and uh, look to God and be fed by God and His Word and His Spirit among the community of believers so that we can bring the flesh into the weakness that God desires it to be. So what, what I want to do right now is I want to give you uh, three instructions from verses 11 and 12 that are going to help you in this battle. This battle for happiness and for holiness. Now, you don't see the words happiness and holiness in verses 11 and 12, but I really see that, that in Satan's attacks, in the world's attacks, and in our flesh's attacks, what they're really attacking is they don't want us to be happy in God, and they don't want us to be holy like God. All right, And so that's really where the battle is. That's what it's for. I want to be happy in Christ. I want to be holy like Christ. That's what the battle is for. And that, that's, that, that, that's the battleground right there. And, and what Peter is saying specifically now, I want you to engage in this fight. I want you to live a life so that missions can happen, so that evangelism can happen, so that the salvation of souls can happen. Listen, holiness is a good endeavor in and of itself. Purity is a good endeavor in and of itself. Hey, it helps you worship God. It helps you be like God. It helps you grow in, the, in, in the, the knowledge of God and in the grace and goodness of Jesus. But here in this text, there is one primary reason why he wants us to fight the fight of faith, to fight the fight of happiness and holiness. And it is essentially our fourth pillar, mission. Offering to people gospel hope. Offering to people a different way. Offering to people this answer. That, listen, you, you find emptiness in the world. You find emptiness in entertainment. You find emptiness. To, you find it complete frustration. Well, listen, I've got an answer for you. His name is Christ. And I want you to see by the way that I live and by my countenance that I exude, that I have him and you can have him too. So here we go. Here, here are the three instructions from this text that I, uh, I want to give you this morning. And you can write them all three down right now. Pretty simple. Put off, put on, and press on. Put off, put on, and press on. The first one, put off, really means put off the lust of the flesh. Put off the passions of the flesh. Put off sin, essentially, is what Peter says. Look at verse 11 again. Verse 11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. All right, so I really just want to ask three questions under this heading. And those questions I want to ask are what, why, and how? What, why, and how? What, what are you telling us to do here? He's saying, listen, abstain from fleshly 
lust. This word abstain, it means to put away. It means to distance yourself from. It means to walk away from, to have nothing to do with. It is strong language. It's language that Peter wants to make sure that there's no confusion about. He does not say here, listen, flirt with these lusts. He doesn't say, hang around these lusts. Um, Come up beside these lusts. Be a friend to these lusts. Um, Have a relationship with these lusts. No, he is saying, put them away. Have nothing to do with them. Put yourself in a different place than what they are. Don't walk beside them. Don't sit with them. Don't don't listen to counsel from them. It's almost like the the psalmist in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk, who does not stand, who who does not sit in the counsel of the wicked, okay? And so he's saying, have nothing to do with these lusts of the flesh. Have nothing to do with them. And, and so um, you think to yourself, well, well why? Well, why? I mean, I, I, I kind of have a tendency to enjoy some of these things, and I don't get really heavy into them. I don't really get heavy into this, this, uh, this music that, that may be uh, defying the glory of God or, or uh, this website that, that uh, you know, it's maybe, not, it's maybe not holy, but it's certainly not as bad, or, or, or this particular uh, movie genre, or this particular TV genre, or this particular kind of place, or this particular kind of thing, or these particular kind of people. I, I, think, I, can, I think I can be around them uh, a, a little bit. They might be neutral. No, he's saying don't do that. Stay away. And so the question really is, is why? Okay, why? Well, he, he gives us, he gives us excellent answers. Look at the first word in the verse. Beloved. Beloved. Now, the NIV actually translates it, dear friends. The NET, dear friends. But the word is beloved. Agape towards. And, and he is making a point here. Chapter 2, verse 11 starts the body of the letter. All right? From 2.11 all the way to 4.11 is the meat of this letter. This is a transition point in the book. And when he actually transitions in this verse and calls them beloved, he is summing up who he has said that they are in Christ Jesus from 1.1 all the way to 2.10. That's what he's doing. Look over at chapter 1, verse 2. He says, you are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You've been chosen by God. Congratulations. Look at verse 3. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. You didn't have hope, but now you have it. You didn't have a future, but now you have it. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Look, you have an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and doesn't fade away. Listen, some of you don't have any physical inheritances on earth, and the ones that you have aren't worth much, but now that you're in Christ, you've got one, and it's eternal, and it's awesome, and it's, and, and it's, it's beautiful. He says, not only that, look at verse 5. He says it's not going anywhere. It's kept by the power of God. God who is sovereign, God who is immutable, God who is unchangeable, God who is unshakable is going to preserve your inheritance forever and ever and ever. And look at verse 10. He says, listen, 
or verse 9, you're receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You have a salvation that the prophets of old have inquired, they've searched, they've scratched their head, they've wondered about. Even the angels long to look after this, and you have it. You have deliverance from sin. You have deliverance from Satan. You have deliverance from the penalty of all of that. It is amazing. And then, and then look, look down at chapter 2, what we looked at uh, this last week. He says, listen, listen. This is who you are. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You weren't a people, but now you're the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy. This is the idea. Peter wanted his readers to read all the way through 2.10 and just sit back and go, wow, wow. I had no idea this is who I was. I had no idea this is how privileged I am. I had no idea this was my inheritance. I had no idea how much God loved me. I had no idea how much He had a plan for me and He's got it and it's fixed. Oh, and, it's, and my future is awesome. And my present is sweet even though it's bitter because of what I'm going through. And so when, when, he's, when we say an abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul, he's saying, because you've got to know who you are. You are loved by God. You are chosen by God. You are cared for. Your soul has a reservation in heaven. Don't play with this little stuff on earth. Don't, don't go to those things. Like, like somehow those things are better than what God has given to you in Christ Jesus. But not only is it because of who you are as the beloved, but also, look, he says, um, I urge you as sojourners and exiles or aliens and strangers. It's like, listen, this place is not your home. That's right. Now, now let's just say, let's take this... Um, Let's call it like it is. We've never been to heaven. We've never actually seen the glory of God in some physical manifestation. So for us to think that this place is our home is somewhat of a natural thought, right? I mean, let's, let's give ourselves a little bit of credit in that regard when we want to think that way. But that's why God has given his word to us. That's why his son came down to earth to manifest the glory of God. That's why we have the spirit of God that has now been implanted into our hearts so that everything that is right, everything that is true, everything that is real is telling us that this place is not our home. This place is not where we need to park ourselves and put all of our investments into and put all of our hope into and put all of our delight into. Because we are merely exiles. We are sojourners. We are pilgrims. This place isn't our home. And then I want to give you this third reason why you need to put off this, this sin. Why you need to abstain from fleshly lust. And you see it at the end of the, end of the verse. Because they wage war against your soul. I think that's probably the, the most uh, overlooked aspect of the fight for holiness. I really do. I think we, um, we have a tendency to think that um, if we don't wage war against uh, uh, fleshly lust, then we might get found out. Or it might damage some relationships that we have, friendships, marriages, father-son relationships. We might think that uh, other bad things might happen if we don't engage in this fight. Um, 
God may not be pleased. Well, all of those things are true. But you know what? I don't think that we really think that if I, if I entertain this fleshly lust and I walk down the path with this fleshly lust, this is going to do irreparable damage to my soul. I think that that's what Peter's trying to tell us, is that whenever we walk down the path of unholiness, whenever we walk down the path of sin, um, there is an impact that it makes. Do we lose our salvation? Nah, we don't lose our salvation. Can we lose joy in Jesus eternally? Nah, we're not going to lose joy in Jesus eternally. But we, there will be something that's done to our soul that creates lacerations in it, that, that will ultimately create scars upon it, that will make our life more bitter than God wants it to be. It will make our life more miserable than God wants it to be. And there will be all kinds of things that come into our lives if we don't fight this fight against the flesh that comes up against us. So this is how, this is how you can put it off, all right? First of all, you need to see it, all right? There, there needs to be an evaluation, an inventory that is taken of your life, all right? You, you don't need to be too busy this week or even tonight to spend 15 minutes taking an evaluation do I have any fleshly lust that I'm entertaining? Are, are there any cravings? Are there any desires? Are, are, there, are there any things that I'm dabbling in that I don't need to dabble in? And, and, and be able to see those for yourself, all right? I need to see it. And then once you see it, you, you need to allow the Word of God and the holiness of God and even the love of God as, he call, as He's called you the Beloved to inform your sight of it so that when you do see it, you'll hate it. You know, sometimes we see our sin, and we know it's sin because God's Word has said it so, but we don't actually hate it. And the reason we don't hate it is because our love for God and His character has been so diminished. Our acquaintance with His Word and His truth has been so belittled that it still looks very attractive to us. And so with an open Bible and with, the, with an open mind, Allowing the Spirit to teach us, we need to not only see it, but we need to hate it and we need to confess it. This is, this is how you can abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. You see it, you hate it, you confess it, and then you turn away from it. You say, I, I'm going I'm to do exactly what Peter said. I'm going to abstain. I'm going to distance myself from it. I'm going to walk away from it. I'm going to turn my back on it. I'm going to turn my face toward Christ. I'm going to behold Him. I'm going to love Him. I'm going to see Him. I'm going to talk about that in just a, in a few minutes. And that, that's what it looks like. You know, Job, in Job chapter 1, verse 1, God says of him that he was an upright man, all right, that he was righteous, and that he turned away from evil. Such that in chapter 1, verse 8, when Satan is considering who he's going to attack and who he's going to lure, God says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? He's a man who is righteous. He is a man who is blameless. He is a man who turns away from evil. God had confidence in Job because Job was a guy who was able to see and hate and ultimately turn away from sin and unrighteousness. And those are the kinds of people that we need to be. So we need to put off fleshly lust. The second thing that we need to do is put on, put on excellence or put on 
honorable conduct. We see it in verse 12. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, then when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. All right, so let's do the same thing here under this heading. What, why, and how? What, why, and how? What does he want us to do? He says, have your conduct honorable. And then if you look toward the end, it says, by your good works, which they observe. I want to tell you that that word honorable and the word good works is the same word in the original. Okay, it's just translated a little differently. Some of your versions use the word excellent. I'm not sure what some of, uh, some of the other versions say. But this word honorable, all right, I want to tell you what it means. Um, it, it means a life that is beautiful. A life that is beautiful. See, you can do good works. Like, like, uh, I could, I could sweep the floor this afternoon and I could get every single speck of dust and dirt and food that's left on, on the floor. But I can do it in such a way that you could say, that's a good work, but not with a very good attitude. Or I can sweep the floor today in such a way that Kay and John get in the car and can say, did you see that guy sweeping the floor? It looked like he was really enjoying that. Looked like it was something that brought him some, some, some pleasure in doing it. I want to sweep floors like that. I, I, I want to be a servant like that. You know, there, one is a good work with a, with a bad attitude. The other is a good work that makes people say, that is really attractive. That, that is really good. I want to be like that. All right? When, when Peter says, all right, put, put on this honorable attitude, do these good works, he's saying do it in such a way that is attractive and beautiful and winsome to the people who are in your sphere of influence. So I'm looking at the Holdens. You guys are, are um, in your community. Y'all want to do your work around your community in such a way that the people say, wow, that is really an attractive family by the way that they serve. That's what, that's what you, you're aiming for. That's what Peter is, is aiming for. All right, so why, why should we, we do this? All right, well, if we look, we are to do it among the Gentiles so that in the thing that they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Listen, this is the deal. Non-Christians, non-Christians already have a demeanor and a spirit of antagonism toward Christians. It's natural, all right? They're depraved, all right? They, they, all they have is a depraved heart with a depraved mind, Okay? That doesn't mean that they're without any value. They, they have great value to God. But that's the way that they think. You realize in the first century, in the Roman Empire, that Christians were called cannibals? Did you know that? Because they heard of this, this feast that they had, which we call the Lord's Supper, where they eat the body and the blood of the person that they follow. They were called terrorists because they were blamed for setting Rome on fire uh, during the reign of uh, Emperor Nero, right? They, they were uh, called adulterers because they involved themselves in love feasts and that they loved one another. And that idea of love was somewhat foreign to the Roman ideal. And so they were called uh, that, that kind of thing. They were, they were uh, called insurrectionists 
because they said that their king was Jesus. Their primary king was Jesus, not, not Caesar. And we could go on and on and on about all the accusations and slanders that were heaped upon Christians. And guys, while we don't hear some of those same accusations today in Calhoun County, Alabama in 2013, we still have a huge hill to climb up. There are major obstacles. When I share the gospel with people at the coffee shop or at a restaurant or in the mall, man, one of the first things that I hear, man, Christians are nothing but hypocrites. Man, my, my, my uncle was a deacon and he abused me. You know, my, my, well, my cousin was a pastor and I know the kind of life he lived because I spent the night with his son, you know, um, every month. I, I hear that kind of thing all the time. I say they're a bunch of frauds, they're a bunch of fakes, they're not the real thing. I would rather be outside the church living as good as I can live than inside the church being a hypocrite. That's, that's the kind of thing I hear frequently. And what we've got to understand, what Peter is telling us, is that we've got to live in such a way that is attractive, that is winsome, that, that, is, that, is, um, that people who are around us in our community, in our family, at our workplace, in our neighborhood right here at Redeemer say, I, those guys are different. I really do. I, I, I sense it. I sense it when they talk to me. I sense it when they call me. I sense it when they text me. I sense it when they don't just do it for a week. They don't just do it for a month. They don't just do it for a year. But for two years, those guys have been coming around me and loving me and caring for me. I, I believe I'm going to give it a try. I really do. That's the idea that, that Peter had. Now, I do want to address one thing right here. Just Almost just like pull the car over for just a moment. Because in the coming weeks, we're going to see that, that Peter actually talks about obeying the government and slaves obeying masters and wives obeying husbands and so on and so on. And, and he's, he's saying these are ways in which you can do this. But in first century Rome, especially where these guys are, Christians didn't have their own subculture. They didn't have their own Christian websites. You know, there wasn't Gospel Coalition and T4G and DesiringGod.org and, and you could listen to your favorite pastor and go to your favorite conferences and almost like create this culture for yourself so that you really don't touch the world. You really don't interact with them. All right, all of these people were interacting with the world. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that, that these things that we do and these websites we visit and these conferences that we go to are bad. No, they're good. But what I am saying is that if we are going to obey First Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, we have to purpose ourselves not to create a subculture. We have to purpose ourselves to push ourselves out of the box, out of this subculture, so that we can actually be, quote, among the Gentiles. Among the Gentiles. These guys didn't have so much of a choice. They were among them. You and I have more of a choice. Could we resolve together to live among the Gentiles? Can we resolve together to be in the world but not of the world? Can we resolve together to establish friendships with people who need Jesus? Could we resolve together to sacrifice some of our own personal time so that we can actually have a viable, vibrant relationship with a woman or a man or a student who needs to hear the gospel? Could we do that, church? If we don't do that, two years from now, these are the people who are going to be in this room. I don't want that. Not why we planted a church. So let's, let's do that. Now, this is how we're going to do it. All right? This is how we're going to do it. You, you can write this down if you're taking notes. You've got to run to Christ. You, you just can't white-knuckle this kind of putting on. You've got to run to Christ. You've got to see Him for who He is. 
And then you've got to rest in Him. You've got to realize, you know what? My, my, my righteousness and my good standing and my pleasure, the pleasure that I give to God is not based on my performance, but on Christ's performance on my behalf. You have to go before Jesus and look at Him upon the cross and say, I rejoice in what you have done. Jesus, you have paid it all. All to you I owe. And then once you rest in Him, you rejoice in Him. I tell you what, this message would fall woefully short if I told you to go out and be missionaries to the glory of God if I didn't tell you the rest of the story. We've got to be a people who rejoice in all that Christ has done for us. We've got to rest. There's got to be a constant inner delight that says, look, I once was this. I once was in darkness, but now I'm in light because of Christ. I once followed the depraved nature of my flesh, but now I can follow the holy example of Jesus. I once had this this spirit that rose up in me that was hard and calloused and selfish and prideful, but now I can put on a spirit of humility and honor and honesty and love. Why? Because the spirit of Jesus is now in me, and I rejoice in that. I rejoice in it. And, And listen, when we go out and live, it's not... It's not like we've got to be perfect. Because I think that one of the most winsome ways for us to fight this fight and to put on the things that he's calling us to put on is simply to be humble when we sin. So there's a sense in which humility, y'all, there's a sense in which honesty, even in the midst of sin, can be winsome to, to unbelievers. And then, guys, we just we need to, to manifest um, the kind of love that Jesus loved, the kind of attitude that Jesus had, the kind of example that he set. And that's, that's how we put on. And then finally, I want to just tell you to press on. I want, you to tell you, I want to tell you to press on in this mission, okay, in this fight, in this war. I've uh, been reading a little bit in the Old Testament this week, and I just asked the question, do you think that Joseph got weary of, of well-doing. I hear he's left for dead by his brothers. He's enslaved. He, he has the sinful, sexual temptation that's offered by this woman. He then gets thrown to the wolves again. He then rises up, and then here his brothers come, and it's all kinds of turmoil. Do you think that he just wanted to just say, I'm done, I'm done, but he didn't. He didn't say, I'm done. And he persevered. He pressed on. And, and, and what he did is he put on holiness and he put off the lust of the flesh. And ultimately, guys, ultimately he died and he was ushered into the presence of God. Right? And do you think that Joseph said, you know what, that fighting and that warring, it just wasn't really worth it? No, that's not what he said. What about Daniel? What about when, when he fought and warred against the lust of the flesh and against the sinful things? And he says, you know what? I don't think I'm going to eat those things. Could, could I please not eat those? And I, I think I'm still going to pray to my God. I think I'm still going to take a stand and I'm not going to worship the, the, the idol and the objects that Nebuchadnezzar builds up. And I think I'm going to tell the truth to him when he pulls me up to him and threatens me with my life. I'm still going to do it. And he did that the, every single day of his life until the very end. And do you think Daniel at the end said, you know what? I really wish I wouldn't have persevered. I really wish I wouldn't have pressed on. Guys, we can go on and on and on with examples in Scripture and even outside of it. And I just want to say this. When you and I feel weary, when we're struggling, when we're just kind of tired and we want to give up, we feel like we're give out, let's keep in mind the end of verse 12. 
that there's going to be a day of visitation. There's going to be a day when the Lord Jesus appears. There's going to be a day not only when, when these people that we're trying to reach are going to see Jesus and they're either going to worship him because they have to or they're going to worship him because they really want to because they've been converted. But there's also a day for you and I in which we see him. And I would just echo the words of Scripture. Don't become weary in doing good. This time right here is a blink of an eye. It's just a short period of time. Let's embrace it. And let's give all that we've got for his glory and for our good that he might say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. And that we might be able to look behind us and he's saying the same thing to the world that we led to Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen.